episode 112, Mentor the Inventor. Today, I speak with Mike Sinheimer from MedTech Catalyst. American healthcare entrepreneurs and executives you want to know. Talking. Relentlessly seeking value. In the healthcare space, successfully commercializing an invention, i.e. selling your new product and ultimately making money on your hard work, it takes more than a eureka moment. There's spreadsheets involved and research and analysis and testing. My guest today, Mike Sinheimer, has been through the process before, more than once. Listen for his go-to-market checklist and also to hear about his work with the Charleston Medical Device Initiative. My name is Stacy Richter, and this podcast is sponsored by Aventria Health Group. Welcome to Relentless Health Value, Mike. Thank you, Stacy, for having me. What your specialty is, taking something that was on the back of a napkin to some sort of commercial endpoint. Could you describe, in general, what does that process look like in the healthcare space? Thanks for the question, Stacey. You know, MedTech Catalyst has founded and co-founded companies with physician inventors. And what we typically do is obviously have to make various assessments to determine whether a project or, or an innovation is worth pursuing. So the first, really the very first test we do is, does this new idea exist already? The basic first step is Googling uh, using search terms that encompass the idea, and if nothing exists, then also looking at the uh, United States Patent and Trademark Office website, which is www.uspto.gov. Your first step is to double-check the marketplace and make sure that nobody already thought of said idea, which would make yeah. it much more difficult to come up with a unique idea if it's already been thought of. Exactly. So some of the other process, which sort of ties to that, let's call it idea triage, is if it doesn't exist, what is the intellectual property landscape like? Does the new idea have freedom to operate? If yes, can you build some patents to create a proprietary position to help justify what will be a large investment in the future? Give me an example of that. And I forget the exact terminology you use. Freedom to operate. Freedom to operate. There you go. So I will, because it also ties to a failure, which I think is the best way of learning that we uh, we did in the uh, probably around 2008 timeframe. We had a exclusively licensed a technology that was meant as a, an algorithm to reduce dose radiation exposure around imaging. The intellectual property was solid. The idea was excellent. The scientists were very, very good. But it also then required that that intellectual property be integrated into CT scans or capital pieces of equipment by the large medical equipment manufacturers such as Philips GE, Samsung, Toshiba, etc. And so from a commercial point of view, we required their cooperation, and in certain circumstances, that was extremely difficult to get. They also had all the rights to the data that came out of their CT scans, and that data was integral into the algorithm. 
So we had great intellectual property, yet we didn't truly have freedom to operate, which then stagnated the effort. So instead of figuring that on the triage, and I learned from that failure what we need to look at in the future to make sure that we have as much confidence that we have freedom to operate in an area in which we think we can add value to healthcare providers and patients. Step one, check the competition. Step two, make sure we've got freedom to operate. I'd say step three in market analysis is, do we truly add value or maybe even shift the paradigm to the prospective user? So part of that is, who is the target audience that you're going after? And will you truly add value to their practice? Okay. I'm just taking some notes here. The fourth one, a lot of them are interrelated, obviously. The fourth one is, is the market potential large enough to justify an investment? Will it have a good return on investment? So you can have the greatest idea that can add value, but may not justify the investment. For example, I've looked at a lot of technologies that are instrument-related that don't have any disposable revenue tied to them that are at a very low price point. So you're going to have a one-time sale for a couple hundred dollar item and going through the regulatory process and the R&D process is an expensive proposition. So if, if you have sort of a small, let's call it revenue potential, which obviously means a small profit potential, it's going to be extremely difficult to get a return that justifies that investment. I was talking to an investment banker recently, just randomly, and what he was saying is that what entrepreneurs always tend to do, this is the easiest thing in the world, to do a revenue projection. And you're always really optimistic. It's this hockey stick of a a graph. He said what's really difficult in doing a financial projection is doing an accurate budget forecast. He's like, I don't even look at the top line. I I just look at the bottom. You know, I'd say both are important, but but both are forecasts. And inherently, when you make a forecast, it's proven false by by reality. But you have to lay your map down somewhere in the beginning of the process. What we typically do is we put together a product development plan in the front end, which has the milestones in the project, the timeline to each milestone, and the budget to each milestone. I mean, the, the real key is when you're developing, innovating, translating an idea, whatever term you use, these are risky efforts. And so you're, what you're trying to do to the best of your ability is to manage that risk. From a fiduciary responsibility to the investors that we have in the portfolio companies, we want to take things basically one milestone at a time and inform the investors and the team that's involved, uh, just be as transparent as possible as how we're moving down that pathway. You know, the motto being fail fast. Is that also where you're taking a look at what the regulatory requirements might be or the risk that ultimately this thing is not going to get approved? Should it be something which requires FDA or other approval? Yeah, so part of this, let's call it market analysis, is studying all the market dynamics. That could be competition, that could be micro or macroeconomic trends, 
That can be regulatory issues like you just raised. That can be reimbursement. And so what, what you try to do, and obviously we don't have a complete crystal ball, but you begin with the end in mind and work backwards to lay out the plan. Just brought up reimbursement. It must be really interesting these days or, and when I say interesting, I mean that in the terms of we live in interesting times relative to the value-based reimbursement. If we're looking at a reimbursement environment, which is in the middle of changing, then things which may or may not have been profitable in the past could ultimately be very useful or vice versa. Totally agree. So, you know, that that's a difficult scenario, right? Because <laughs> it potentially a moving target. I, I guess one could put sort of a decision tree together with probabilities on how reimbursement might go in terms of impacting whatever project you're on, you know, give your, yourself a likelihood analysis and use that as a planning document. And just uh, obviously for all these things, the critical tool is just to be reading all the time in, in areas that impact where you work. I'm not sure whether this is a fair question or not because it's coming out of left field. But I was talking to somebody about telemedicine. He said telemedicine isn't going to take off until they change the reimbursement to pay for it. And my question was, what do you mean, fee-for-service reimbursement? And he kind of looked at me with a, a funny expression. And this was a, a gentleman that works a lot with smaller physician groups. What do you feel like relative to the importance of value-based purchasing moving forward, given the fact that it didn't seem like that concept was even crossing this guy's radar. That person is basically stating that technology is outpacing the third-party payer reimbursement, which means that telemedicine isn't being deployed at a rate that it could be if it had reimbursement. So first of all, there are several payers that have noted and are reimbursing telemedicine visits, just as uh, one would do a physician visit. You and I both know that telemedicine, you know, there are certain payers who are reimbursing fee-for-service. I think, you know, what we're getting into here is the same thing that the pharmaceutical industry has struggled with for years, which is that at the time of visit, Physicians rarely know what insurance plan their patient has. So if you've got a situation where some patients have telemedicine and some patients don't, typically what you're going to find is until it's a critical mass, you're not going to get a provider that's providing some sort of blanket offering and only a quarter of the patients can take advantage of it. So anyway, I guess what my query was is how much things like that are factoring into the decisions that are being made right now. As you're evaluating a technology that may or may not have fee-for-service reimbursement, but could have a big impact on value, the value of care that's being provided, how are we thinking about this? If there's no fee-for-service, do you not do it? I probably have a different prism because, you know, the sandbox in which I really play are proprietary medical devices and diagnostic technology that probably already have some form of code and that we are innovating in that space, but probably are reimbursable anyway. But the point you're making is very interesting because it's going to be exceedingly interesting 
given where let's call it digital health is um, like wearables and things like that and how they may in the future, you know, I don't think they're completely all there yet, drive some serious value for both patients and payers. But to quantify what it will be needed in, let's call it uh, controlled clinical trials to show the quote unquote proof necessary to show that they're driving sound economics to payers and benefit to patients. I think we have some years to come there, but it is a trend that's right in front of us and technology is only going to hopefully improve to hopefully derive clinical benefit that then is reimbursable. All right. So back to your list, my friend. So yeah, we did talk about the market dynamics, which are, you know, competition, which we said in the front, regulatory pathway, macro and microeconomics, reimbursement, et cetera. Then it's sort of, you know, what are your ground up unit and revenue forecasts? What are the economics? How much dollars will it take to get to market? And what are your plans potentially to make the investment liquid in the future? Getting a sense of time horizon, magnitude of investment, et cetera. But that's mostly it. And then it all ties to who's your target audience. We talked about, quote unquote, users of the technology, understanding the value chain. And, in, you know, in a hospital setting, diverse constituencies. Speaking of hospitals, and this is one thing that you and I had talked about earlier, one of the things that you had said, which I found intriguing, was that new product development is typically not being done at big companies due to all of the factors that you just said and the risk involved in them. Generally speaking, a larger company is going to wait until something is proven and then pay a premium for it, which is something that you said. Why is that? And do you feel like or, or maybe the why is, is fairly self-evident, but do you think there's a cost involved? Do you think that's the right thing to do? What are the pros and cons there? So my general feeling, and there are exceptions to every rule, I think big companies are paying a lot of attention to innovation, but there's still the conservative nature of large companies and those that work there. Failure isn't always embraced, and as a result, that dilutes taking risk as an employee. People and environments create risk-averse practices. In a big company, there are so many competing efforts which interfere with complete focus on new ideas. In terms of my space, in some ways, it's much easier to buy innovation once it's proven elsewhere, particularly with low interest rates that enable M&A through an inexpensive debt. A lot of times in my space, what's really going on is there isn't R&D in the big companies, and they aren't willing to take what I'll call front-end risk, which can be feasibility, which can be animal trials, clinical trials. What big companies are really good at understanding is market risk. So once these smaller companies have uh, proven out the technologies or overcome all these risky hurdles, the big companies then will take a good solid look at partnering and or buying the uh, smaller companies because they understand the commercial implications and now they don't have any quote unquote technical risk in bringing those products or technologies to market. When you say big companies, are we mainly talking about, for example, GE or the large suppliers in the healthcare space, or are we talking about Sloan Kettering or both? Probably the former and not the latter. So meaning that we're talking about the, you know, Medtronics and and the, the big uh, medical device companies and then big pharma 
you know, biotech exists today from, you know, 10, 15, 20 years ago, big pharma not doing the innovation, right? And so a lot of the big M&A in pharma was primarily done buying out biotech companies. And now some biotech companies, Amgen being an example, are big enough to do their own M&A. The same model for the the pharma companies are in in a pretty well-known fashion are are doing, you know, I I think it was Purdue recently just got rid of all their R&D function and said, you know what, we're just going to go with the flow and just buy innovation as opposed to trying to manage it internally. So that's a pretty well-established model outside of the pharma industry as well, it sounds like. Yeah. And then then, uh, it's kind of interesting, and it does tie to some hospitals. There are now innovation centers around the country, but uh, Boston being a, a probably the best example, and Big Pharma now basically either co-locating or locating very near uh, these innovation centers. So Novartis, Bristol-Myers, Pfizer, Santa Fe, they all have efforts around these areas that have this ecosystem of you know, scientists and clinicians and everything, employees all around these world-class universities, just trying to get closer earlier. So there's a, a trend to expend some monies early to be close to the pulse of innovation and to probably gauge what's happening there to potentially then have transactions with early stage developments. How important is it, do you feel like, to be part of one of those hubs? And I say this because of something that you said earlier in this conversation, which was that in order for these big organizations to even glance at some of these startups, the technology has to be proven. But super hard to prove anything if you don't have patience, for example, to prove it with. And the only way you can get patients to prove it with is if you're actually trying it out in some fashion. So it's kind of this chicken and egg catch-22, I would think, from a startup standpoint. Yeah, it's it's definitely a catch-22. I think they've made a conscious effort to, you know, get closer to the very early stage developments and also recognizing that not everything that comes out of their companies is going to be invented there. And I think it's a competitive move to make sure that they're, you know, seeing some early stage technologies that may be something that they're interested in the future. And remembering what is happening in pharma and medtech is a lot of their pipelines are drying up to a degree. So some very big businesses associated with whatever specific drugs or devices, they're going off patent. And in pharma, obviously, we've been hearing so much about generics these days and high-priced pharma drugs that they they have to backfill the pipeline to make sure that they're growing at a, at a rate that's consistent with the, the PEs that their stockholders are demanding. Are you thinking about that pharma companies need to buy smaller pharma companies who have innovative compounds in their pipeline? Or are you thinking pharma companies are going to start getting into other med tech spaces and expanding broadly as opposed to staying in their niche? All the above. (laughs) So, you know, uh, in terms of pharma, one of the interesting development, pharma and device, because it's related. 
is this effort around combo drugs and devices. There's all this nanoscale technology being created and nanorobots. And those things are potentially sensing systems, so sort of diagnostics in some ways. They go in as sort of a device, but they release a drug, a therapy. Uh, The things are all blending together. It's very interesting what's going on. I would be remiss if I did not bring up your JV with the University of South Carolina. Yeah, thanks for bringing that up. So MedTech Catalyst, my firm, uh, has uh, partnered with the Medical University of South Carolina Foundation for Research Development. What we're, we're doing at the joint venture is on the front end, what we're doing is we will be soliciting grant applications from physician inventors, biomedical engineers, and dentists, and we will have a triage group made up of multidisciplinary experts that will help us select what we think are the best ideas from both a clinical slash technical point of view, as well as a commercial potential point of view. And so we will give proof of concept grants to those that we make the awards to. And then on top of the monetary contribution, we'll have non-monetary resources available, meaning experts to mentor that inventor to make sure that they translate their idea to a proof of concept that uh, is viable. From there, we will either license the technology to a bigger company that has a commercial footprint, or we will spin those technologies out that are viable into their own entities. And the mentors and the inventors will work within that spin out to bring that product to market. I like that. Mentor the inventor. So where can people learn more about MedTech or the Charleston Medical Device Initiative? Should they be interested? We are building a website for the Charleston Medical Device Initiative. So that'll probably be the next couple months. So be on the lookout for that. But in the interim, people can see what MedTech Catalyst is about at www.medtechcatalyst.com. It has been a pleasure to have you on the podcast, Mike. Thank you so much, Stacey. Links to everything discussed on the program today can be found at RelentlessHealthValue.com. If you visit the website, RelentlessHealthValue.com, you will also find a complete listing of all of the shows that we have published thus far with leading entrepreneurs and executives in the healthcare space today. Another cool feature is, you know, you can subscribe to the show so that every week the episode is automatically sent to you so you don't have to remember to go to the website to download it. Thanks so much for listening.